It's the Growing for Market podcast. Yeah, Valentine's Day is red, pink, and white. You know, 90% of what you sell is going to be red, pink, and white. Don't grow a bunch of orange and yellow or purple. Definitely no orange in the spring. Once you get to Easter, yellow comes in because you think of yellow for Scythia. That's a, a color that works. Still no orange for Easter. Easter is still the purple, lavender, pink, red, white, and yellow. Still no orange. Orange doesn't kick in until late August, September. It just there's it's it's a tough sell for the holidays otherwise. But if you have orange for Thanksgiving, you can sell every one of them. But the day after Thanksgiving, nobody wants orange anymore. So make sure you time your crops right. Nothing's worse than having a bunch of lilies time for, for Valentine's Day. Have them bloom a week late and they're orange lilies for December. And it's going to be a really hard sell because nobody wants them. They want the red and white then because it's Christmas. Hello, and welcome to the Growing for Market podcast, where we talk about all things market farming related. I'm Andrew Mefford, your host and the editor of Growing for Market magazine. For 32 years, the magazine for vegetable and flower farmers. If you're enjoying the podcast, just wait till you see the magazine. Go to growingformarket.com for more. Also, if you could give us a follow and a rating, it really helps other like-minded people find the podcast. In a few minutes, we'll take a break from the interview and talk about farm tools with Connor of NeverSync Farm. We will be chatting about new tools, old tools, how they can benefit your farm, and tips to use them successfully. NeverSync Farm makes this podcast happen with their generous support so it can come to you for free. And we think there's no better sponsor for a podcast by farmers for farmers than NeverSync Farm, where the tools are designed and made by farmers. So check them out at NeverSyncTools.com. Today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of talking with Dave Dowling. Dave is a cut flower specialist for Ball Seed Color Link and an instructor for the Gardener's Workshop's range of video flower growing courses. Dave grew cut flowers in Montgomery County, Maryland for 20 years, which is an area I'm very familiar with since I grew up one county to the south and over the state line in Fairfax County, Virginia. That whole area is basically part of the urban sprawl emanating out around Washington, D.C. When we were selling our produce there, we thought it was a good market because there are a lot of people who are working for the federal government and all of its associated institutions for us to sell to. Dave did field, high tunnel, and greenhouse production of plants and cut flowers year-round. Most of the flowers he raised were sold at area farmers markets, including two year-round markets in the Washington, D.C. area. He also did direct sales to retail florists and Whole Foods, selling hundreds of thousands of cut flowers each year. Flowers were sold direct to florists from Baltimore to Washington, D.C. through Capital Grown Flowers, a cooperative formed with two other flower growers in 2013. Early in 2014, so about a decade ago, Dave closed his cut flower business and began working for Edney Flower Bulb, which became a division of Fred C. Glockner and Company. Late in 2020, the Ball Seed Company purchased Glockner, and now he is a Ball Colorlink sales rep and advisor to cut flower growers across North America with small to medium-sized farms. Dave also works on marketing and promotions, cut flower training, and sourcing new cut flowers products at Ball Seed. Dave served as the Mid-Atlantic Regional Director of the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers, known as the ASCFG, a great organization if flower growers aren't already familiar with it, from 2002 through 2004, and served as the president of the ASCFG from 2006 to 2009, 
and again from 2016 to 2018. So thank you so much for being with us on the pod today, Dave. Can you tell us a bit about your history growing cut flowers and then how you came to make the transition to work for Ball? Yeah, well, I started my cut flower journey, I guess, back in 1994, I think it was, 93 or 94. Just started at really small, selling at a weekday farmer's market. Just happy if I sold $100 worth of stuff. It was just a, a part-time gig, but I worked at a garden center. But you guys, you could say it got out of hand. People wanted more flowers, so I grew more flowers, got in more farmer's markets. And after a couple of years, I quit my job at the garden center and did the cut flowers full-time for, you know, ended up being 20 years total. When I closed my farm, Edney offered me a job as this working for them, both selling and working in their warehouse. So I moved to New Jersey to do that. And after, I guess it was about four years, Edney sold to the Fred Glockner company. So then I worked at Glockner, still at Edney's location, but could sell bulbs plus, you know, perennials, plugs, seeds, and all the other stuff that goes with the Glockner company. And then in 2020, late 2020, in the end of, or in the middle of all the pandemic, <laughs> apparently it was on in the works since before the pandemic, and kind of the process slowed down. But then the Ball Seed Company bought the customer base of Fred Glockner Company. So then I was offered a job with Ball Seed to be a, what they call an account development rep within their ColorLink division. And their ColorLink division is who a whole office department that works with smaller customers. So I was hired with Ball to be a uh, sales rep, basically, for the cut flower industry. All my customers at the ball are just cut flower growers. I don't sell petunias and impatience to bedding plant growers and garden centers. That's not my expertise, so I don't do that. But I deal with customers all across the country and also help other sales reps who have cut flower growers. Working with ball, I work remote, so I was able to move to Delaware, so it's you know kind of in the mid-Atlantic area. So working at ball has been a little over almost two and a half years now, uh, and just Seeing the growth of Cutflower customers at Ball has been phenomenal, where they get sometimes several hundred a month of new customers, and most of them are Cutflower customers, Cutflower growers, because you can get into the Cutflower business on the cheap. It doesn't have to cost you a whole lot. Whereas if you're going to be a garden center, you're not going to spend 100000 200000 to build a greenhouse, you know, retail location, and that just doesn't happen anymore. So most of the customer growth at Ball is Cutflower customers. Yeah. And that's something I, I wanted to ask you about. It seems like we're seeing a, just a huge growth in cut flower growers. Just seems like as far as the, the number of people who are subscribing to the magazine who have cut flower farm in the name or seem to be flower growers just seems to be growing a lot faster than it used to. Are, are you seeing a lot of growth as well in the, the cut flower farmers there at Ball? Yeah, definitely. Even before the pandemic, which the pandemic got everybody growing plants, whether it's house plants, the garden, everything, the sales of plant material went through the roof with the pandemic. But even before that, like the ASCFG was seeing a huge increase in the membership eight or nine years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, going from three or 400 to the thousand and then 2000 and now almost 3000 ASCFG members were close to 3000. And again, I think a lot of it's because you can get into the business inexpensively you can do it as a part-time gig where you're thinking about retiring from your nursing job, your teaching job, or whatever other job you've had for your career. A lot of second careers are starting people in their late 40s, 50s, even early 60s, starting a cut flower business. Sometimes they have no desire for it to get to be anything big. They're just going to grow small, sell at one farmer's market, or sell to a couple of florists. Some of them, though, that I know have started in the past five or six years have gone from zero to 100 in, you know, two years, where they're now a huge farm doing hundreds of thousands in sales, buying lots of product from Ball or wherever they're buying their you know, seeds and plugs and bulbs from. But they're doing literally you know, half a million dollars in sales after just two or three years. And that just is something that can be done in the cut flower industry 
if you have the drive and want to put the work into it. Like any job, you know, whether it's vegetable farming or produce farming or, or flowers, you got to put in the work to get the results you want. And if you want to grow to be a big farm, to have employees and selling half a million dollars in flowers, you got to put the work in to do it. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. It's really encouraging to see the growth of the domestic flower industry, because I know there's a lot of competition from in this country from South and Central America. But I really like to see people being able to, to have interest in, in the domestic market. And I know those three names. So Edney, Glockner and Ball, I feel like those are three names that people who have been in the business for a while, they're probably familiar with those names just because they've been suppliers of seed and planting stock for such a long time. So it's, it's interesting that they're all under one roof now. Yeah. Well, one thing that's that's happened with the changes, Ball Seed is now putting more emphasis on being the cut flower supplier to the smaller farms. It used to be they worked with the big California growers. And then their main business is bedding plants and perennials for the, the true garden center and the big box stores. But they are putting an emphasis on cut flowers again, because that's how Ball started a hundred and some years ago was, you know, George Ball grew carnations and snapdragons and did some breeding and was, you know, started selling seeds. Mm hmm. OK, actually, yeah, I did not know that. I knew Ball had been around for a long time, but I didn't know that's how they got their start. So that's great. Was there anything that surprised you when you made the switch from grower to working in the seed bulb and plant industry? Because I was already you know, a customer of Edney, I knew pretty much that you know you need to order in advance and things run out. You know, it's not an unlimited supply. It's not like going to the Home Depot when you want to buy a screwdriver. They can always get another thousand screwdrivers in next week if they run out. When you're buying bulbs or seeds, some of those things have taken years to grow. And when they run out, they run out. The suppliers, whether they're producing seed, producing a lily bulb or a tulip bulb or you know, growing a plug, some of those things were planned several years ago thinking, okay, we're going to sell 500,000 Sarah Bernhardt peonies in the year 2025. And then whatever happens with the market or the economy, it goes better or worse. All of a sudden, they, they run out because they didn't plan ahead. They didn't guesstimate how many they needed. And when you consider there's not just, you know, it's peony Sarah Bernhardt, there's, you know, 300 peonies, 5,000 different cut flower varieties. There's always going to be something running out, not enough. And one really big example is the eucalyptus seed. Australia had wildfires, I think, three or four years ago that wiped out a lot of the seed producing areas for eucalyptus seed. And it's taken two years, almost three years to get some of the seeds back in stock. And there's one variety, Silver Drop, that's still not available. The seed might be available this September but it's been out of stock and unavailable for three years now. And that's just something that, you know, you can't really plan for that. It's just unavoidable, you know, fires burnt down the farm basically, or where they're producing the seed. Right. Well, that's one thing that I was a little bit surprised by when I, I, cause I used to work for Johnny Selected Seeds. And so when I went from being a grower to working in the industry, I was just surprised about how much of the business is just logistics, you know, it's like Legello. getting a, production that's potentially happening in another part of the world, like planned out in a quantity. And then, you know, maybe that variety gets a lot more popular in the meantime. So you actually should have made twice as much. And then, you know, there's a crop failure or some kind of it, the crop doesn't do, the seed crop doesn't do as well. So you're getting half as much as something that you really would have liked uh, twice as much of. I would say sometimes all it takes is some social media influencer, whether some popular farmer or some, you know, magazine to put a flower on their website on the cover of the magazine, Martha Stewart, and that flower will then become, everybody wants it. In one example is a cafe au lait dahlia. Everybody wants the cafe au oh, yeah. dahlia. They mm -hmm. can eat it for the wedding. But it's been 15 years ago that I think Martha Stewart put it in her magazine, and that's a dahlia that brides know by name. They see it. 
And when you see a bridal bouquet and they name the flowers, this is Cafe Lay Dahlia, and then everybody wants that. So this it was for years shortage of Cafe Lay Dahlia tubers because everybody was buying them. The, the supply is kind of caught up to the demand, so they're available now. But there for a while, they would sell out every year and nobody could get enough of them. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, you, you need to talk to the influencers and tell them to only promo the things that there's there's seed stock for or give you t- two years lead time. Right. Sometimes longer. I was going to explain real quick about ranunculus because most flower growers grow ranunculus as long as you have a place to sell them in the spring when they're blooming. Is that ranunculus that you buy that you get shipped to you this fall was started two years ago when the supplier hand pollinated to make hybrid seeds from two different parent plants, plant that seed this spring, grow that seed, harvest the root, and then sell the root. So it's a long process. And if they guesstimated two years ago how many they needed and they guessed wrong, or when COVID happened, they couldn't go in the greenhouse to do the pollination. You know, they had to lock down where they were in France. So the following year, there was a big shortage in ranunculus because they just literally could not make the seed to grow the corms that we sell. So little things like that. And it could be as much as it was COVID that time. It could be as much as there was a fire somewhere, somebody employee got sick. It could be anything that for some reason they don't, get the job done that week. So then there's a shortage a year or two later. Yeah, right. Don't even start on the weather. (laughs) The weather messes everything up. (laughs) Well, that's what I was thinking for something with a two-year production time like the ranunculus. That's also 700 plus days where if, yeah, bad weather, the crop gets sick, gets a pest or whatever, that's, you know, 700 days where a bad, you know, a bad day in there anywhere can affect that, you know, the outcome two, two years later. So... Last year in Israel is where most of the, a lot of the anemones come from. They had a really early heat wave with temperatures in the hundreds when it should have been in the eighties and all the plants went dormant before the roots got the right size. So there's shortages and really small roots last year for the anemones. Supposedly this year it's recovered from that, but you know, they had, it's no different if you were growing any produce crop and all of a sudden it got so hot, you know, you're growing your spring peas and it got so hot, the plants went dormant and they died. The yeah. crop is over and the season's done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what people have to remember is that, you know, we're, you're dealing with a biological product here. Yeah, it's not like this screwdriver where if they look, see they're going to run out, they can just add an extra shift at the ranunculus factory. You know, they can't, they can't do that. So yeah, I was always jealous of the bakers at the farmer's market, because if it's going to be a rainy market day, they just don't bake as many cookies. But my plants were planted six months before the bloom. And what do I do? I either sell them or compost them. But the baker could say, oh, it's raining tomorrow. Let's bake half as many cookies. You know, but I couldn't, I didn't have that choice as a grower. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely something I don't miss about, um, about doing farmer's markets. Market <laughs> yeah. Is it that, you know, a lot of times that when we had the most produce, it coincided with the thunderstorm time of the year and right. could be the best, you know, our best assortment of the year and nobody comes because it's thunder and lightning. So, and now let's talk farm tools with Connor of Neversink Farm, our collaborator on this podcast. Hey, Connor. Last couple times we chatted, we were talking about seeds and flats and greenhouses, but obviously people also put seeds directly in the ground out in their fields. I know this time of year, we start doing a lot of direct seeding for our fall and winter crops like carrots and chicories. How do you all prep the ground and ensure germination in the field at Neversink Farm for direct seeding? Well, you know, on a small scale like on our farm. You know, every every bed is so important. That bed prep, we, you know, put a lot of investment into it, whether it's the inputs we put in or in the labor as well. So when we're prepping it, you know, we put that time in. 
So we're always adding compost. We're adding fertilizer, depending on what crop came before that one. And we, we don't fork anymore, but we used to fork for aeration. And that's really just going to depend on someone's soil. If very compacted soil or new soil, it's always good to get air into it. We have very sandy soil and years and years of compost. It's, the forking isn't so necessary, but it's to do it religiously. And then we always uh, tilt it to get a nice fluff on top. Well, we try to make it look just absolutely perfect and level and wonderful. And then depending on what we're going, how we're going to be seeding, is it going to be a jang, a pinpoint? So we may use a bed roller for a pinpoint. For jang, it's not as necessary. Then I always grid it to make sure that I get, you know, very because I want to maximize every bed. I want all 30 inches to be used. I want every plant to get it the right distance that it needs. Yeah, and you're talking about your roller gritter, right? I was checking that on your website. Super cool. So yeah. it, it's not just marking <laughs> parallel lines. It's also giving you some spacing markings too, right? Yeah, I use it for if I'm going to use Jang, even if I'm going to use paper pot, just take a nice straight rows. I definitely love the way it looks too, but it does give you an advantage, not just beautifully straight rows. Wonderful for cultivating and gives each plant it the right amount of distance. But that soil prep, I think, makes such a big difference on whether things are going to germinate well. You know, the soil holding capacity is what's going to be key. But just like in the crop house, you got to watch your watering, especially, you know, we're going to be doing our final seeding of carrots and the key to that is just watering them it's, it's obviously you know you can use a jang if you got one so that those seeds go below the surface so they get good contact with the soil but then keep it nice and moist until they germinate which I, I always use overhead for something like that i was gonna ask are you using your little micro sprinklers for that yeah it's always overhead for us you know, in the field. We don't have any drip in the field okay. at all. Um, just because it's so useful for when you plant, you want to instantly water, when you want to germinate something, to full coverage. And I want to water the field very, very quickly when it's hot out. Because it's all about production per square foot on such something so small. You just can't lose any a whole bunch of beds. You know, when you put so much time into each bed, you want each one to produce really, really, really well. Yeah. And another seed prep tool I use, which I, I, is incredibly cheap, and I think everyone has, and I use religiously, is string. I always string my beds, you know, because I want to get every bed productive. So it always gets uh, a string. Can you talk more about what you're using the string for in that case? Like just to mark from end to end? Yeah, because, you know, they're permanent beds, right? So I remember the days when we had to, like, recreate every bed when you using a, a tiller. You know, I would always have to recreate them because I only want 14-inch paths and I don't want things to drift. So now that they're permanent, all the beds are staked out. So they have stakes. And so I'm using the bed, that, that edge of the bed so that I get the bed perfectly split into rows and everything is straight. Without a string, I, I couldn't do it. Not over 50 feet. I going all over the place. So a string is really, really important. At, you know, kind of the final bed prep is, you know, getting everything lined up and straight and uh, well seated. 
you know, we used to rush in the early years, and it didn't do us any good. You know, we, the more time we spent, and just were careful about it, didn't rush, and took our time to get things, you know, well done. Pays off, I think. Definitely. Well, thanks, Connor, for those tips for bed prep and seeding in the field. And I hope that everybody has great success getting their fall crops in. We'll talk to you again next time, Connor. All right, great. Thank you, soon. And now, back to the show. Is there anything else growers should know about ordering? I mean, the classic thing is order early. I know one thing we would do as we became more experienced growers is to put our seed orders in earlier and earlier because we knew that whatever crops were hot were being ordered by everyone else. And a seed crop failure or shortage could mean that even people who order fairly early don't get the amount they were hoping for. I would say we saw that at Glockner when there was a big explosion of new cut flower growers about four or five years ago that they ran out of stock seed. You know, they just had the normal million or so seeds that got in, they ran out. And the people who were regular customers would normally order in November or December, place the order and they're already sold out. So, you know, it's important to order in advance. And what I always like to say is when that crop is blooming this year, it's time to order for next year. So if your peonies were blooming a week ago, it's time to order more peonies for the next planting. Or if you're picking your ranunculus now, it's time to order for the next shipment, the next season. Don't wait till it's time to ship it to you because they're going to be gone. I like to say a lot of times that either plugs and plants like this are kind of like wedding cakes. You wouldn't wait till the week or two before your wedding to order the cake because you're probably not going to get what you want if you can find a baker that'll do it for you. So order way in advance. Okay. Yeah, well, that's a really great rule of thumb then for growers to keep in mind. Is there any difference growers should keep in mind when ordering seeds versus bulbs in plants and other perishables? Well, one thing with seed, with ball seeds, we have what we call in by five out the same day. So if you order by 5 p.m. Central Time and the seed is in stock, which most of our seed is in stock, it will still ship out that day. So if you're you know, within a one-day post office from Chicago, you'll get it the next day, maybe two or three days later if you're on the east or west coast. But as long as the seed is in stock and you order by 5 p.m., we ship out that same day. Even in the middle of the craziness of the pandemic when this, you know, seed sales went through the roof, they were still able to ship out the same day if the order was in by 5 p.m. If something's not in stock, our website always shows you when it's expected. So like that silver drop eucalyptus right now, the date is September 28th, I think. So, you know, they expect it to come in then. You can place the order for it. And when it comes in, it should ship to you as long as we haven't sold more, pre-sold more than we we're getting in, which could be a possibility with that because so many people want it. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, that's a great feature because I know some of the places where we order farm supplies from and things, if it's not in stock, it's just sort of like... It's anybody's guess. And, you you know, you almost you have to call somebody up to find out when it might actually come in. So that's really handy to have that information displayed. Yeah. And I also want to throw out there real quick is that ball seed also sells veggie seeds. You know, we sell tomato seeds and peppers and all that kind of stuff. So it's not just cut flowers or bedding plants. Yeah, right. Good point. Am I right that some some of the are the ball veggies? available through other catalogs too or do, or do you have to go to ball for the the varieties it all depends some of our stuff we call them exclusive or proprietary which the only way you can get them is through us but some of the a lot of the stuff is still available through another seed company like johnny's or geoseed or your know, burpee or someplace like that so it all depends on the actual variety some things are exclusive to us and we keep it you have to order through ball but a lot of the stuff is on the open market you know johnny's would just buy the seed from us and then resell it okay all right. Well, the cover story of the current June-July Growing for Market magazine is a really excellent article by Rebecca Kutzer-Rice of Moonshot Farm in New Jersey. 
called mm-hmm. Growing Flowers for All the Major Floral Holidays. And we will make that article public. So if people don't have the magazine, they can head over to growingformarket.com and read it. And we'll put a link down in the show notes to that. And one of the most relevant points that Rebecca makes in her article is that none of the major floral holidays occurs in the summertime when most growers have the most flowers. She's talking Valentine's Day, Easter, Mother's Day, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. In fact, she points out in the article that in order to hit all the big floral holidays, growers in most places will need to do some kind of season extension. Now, I know Slow Flowers is trying to do something about that by having American Flowers Week every year, the week of the 4th of July. And I think they're making some progress with that holiday. But to be frank, the big floral holidays are inconveniently in the colder parts of the year. But Rebecca does point out in her article that the holidays are very lucrative times if you can grow for them. For example, two of the holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas, I didn't typically think of as big flower holidays. However, she points out that a lot of people are either hosting or traveling to someone else's house for Thanksgiving. And many people may buy a floral centerpiece or bring one as a host or hostess gift if those flowers are available around Thanksgiving. Now, Dave, you sent me a really nice PDF that you put together called Planning and Planting for the Flower Holidays that I will make a link to that that we can put in the show notes. And your PDF covers the exact same floral holidays that she mentions, I mean, because they are the big floral holidays. But you do have five big holidays. You have some slightly, let's see, you've got some of the same, but some different suggestions than she does. So I think they're both worth a look if growers are trying to plan for these floral holidays. And your fact sheet also has propagation dates for the suggested crops for each holiday, which should be really useful if growers aren't used to planting to hit those production dates for for those holidays. There are essentially there are suggestions for when to start each crop to hit each holiday in your PDF. So there's a lot of information there, but I wanted to take the opportunity while we've got you on the line to talk a little bit about each of these holidays. What are your suggestions for growers trying to have a nice assortment for Valentine's Day? Well, Valentine's Day, unless you're in a really warm, like zone nine or 10, you're going to have to have a heated structure, a heated greenhouse, a high tunnel with the supplemental heat, or you can grow under lights in your basement if you have a, enough space to do that and grow it in crates. Um, there are people growing tulips in the basement or ranunculus in the basement under lights. So that is a possibility, but you need a heated structure. And to me, the number one flower for Valentine's Day would be tulips, you know, red, white, and pink tulips. You can't go wrong with those. The trick is you would be using what's called a 5C tulip which are ones that have already had their cooling. So then you plant them around Christmas time and they're ready for Valentine's. Or you could use nine seed tulips that you would plant in crates, give some additional cooling until late December, then move them into the heated area to grow and have tulips for Valentine's Day. But it's all about timing. And if you're growing tulips or ranunculus or anything that's got a, a very definite harvest window when it's ready today, you have to pick it. You definitely need to have a cooler because you're going to pick every day and then sell on Valentine's Day. So you're going to be loading up the cooler for the week or 10 days before Valentine's Day and then unload on the Valentine's Day and hope your sales are great. One thing I do want to point out about Valentine's Day, it depends what day of the week it is, how good the sales are going to be. If you're at a farmer's market and Valentine's Day ends, if you're at a Saturday market and Valentine's Day is Saturday, sales are going to go through the roof. If you're at a market on Saturday and Valentine's Day is Sunday, it might be okay. But if Valentine's Day is Saturday and you do the market on Sunday, don't grow anything extra because you're a day late and then a dollar short. You know, you're selling the day after the holidays. 
you're not going to make any sales. And the same thing kind of goes for retail florists. If you're selling flowers to retail florists, Valentine's Day, Monday through Thursday are usually great. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday are terrible for retail florists because instead of sending his wife or his girlfriend flowers, he's going to take her out to dinner or take her away for the weekend. The big thing with Valentine's flowers is having to deliver to the person at their office if the woman works or if you can sell, send flowers to guys, but you, you can send flowers to somebody at work. That's part of the whole shtick of you know Valentine's flowers and make sure everybody sees you got Valentine flowers. So if Valentine's happens on Saturday or Sunday, sales go through the floor for the retail floors, but much better for at a farmer's market if it's the right day of the week for you. You know, Valentine's Saturday, you're at the farmer's market, sales would be great. So you got to think of that. I know when I was growing, if Valentine's Day was on a Friday, I didn't grow much extra for it because I was at a Saturday and Sunday market and you totally missed that week that week of Valentine's Day. So think of that when you're doing Valentine's to what day of the week it is each year because it's always February 14th, but it could be any day of the week. So just keep that in mind when you're planning for Valentine's. Don't gear up and plan a whole bunch of stuff and find, oh, Valentine's Day was yesterday. My market's tomorrow. I, I, poor planning. So that's just something to think about on Valentine's Day. But the tulips are great. Ranunculus anemones are also great. They can grow in a cooler greenhouse, all three of those. By cooler, I mean you can only heat to, only to heat to 40 or 45 at night, which that can make a huge difference on your heating bill, whether it's propane or oil, whatever you're using. 40 degrees at night versus 55, a huge dollar amount difference. You can also grow stock and snapdragons for Valentine's Day. Uh, you just got to plan ahead and plan it back in I think it's mid-October when you're planting them. And again, in that cooler greenhouse, they'll do okay. One thing with snapdragons, they're groups one, two, three, four. So always make sure you grow in the right group. Group one is for winter. Group four is for summer. Don't try and grow a summer snapdragon in the winter because it's just not going to work. And that would be a failure. No matter how, you know, you've got this great snapdragon that bloomed for you last July. You loved it. Don't plant rocket snapdragons for the winter. They're not going to work. Okay. So Valentine's Day is easy because it's always February 14th. Does that mean that people are using that the first class of snapdragons to try and hit? Is that still considered a winter growing window? Because you would have to be growing through the winter to hit February 14th. Right. And the group determines when it's blooming, not when you plant it. So these will be planted. The snapdragons should be planted this sometime in October and they're going to bloom in February, but that's all still group one. Once you get blooming in Easter time, which is usually March or early April, then you go to the group two or three snapdragon because the days are longer a little bit warmer and the group one won't well but there's always some varieties that span two groups like there's a maryland one dash two so it can be one or two work either time frame so you got to be really careful of the snapdragon groups when you're growing snaps yeah that is a great tip that i i'm gonna think is gonna keep people out of trouble from trying to grow their favorite summer snap in the <laughs> for in the valentine's <laughs> day one other point that rebecca makes in her article is that if you do have a heated house which Really, I mean, most people in the continental United States would need some heat. I realize ranunculus is you're recommending cool weather crops already, but it's February 14th is so early in the year. I think most people are going to need some kind of heat to guarantee that blooms are ready for that time. One thing she recommended to do was to actually grow them a little bit faster or more aggressively, you would say, because assuming the weather's good and the sunlight is good and the crop is progressing properly, it's easier to back off on the heat and slow the crop down as the right. holiday approaches. Okay. So is it, do you think that's a good, good advice to like, and, and also harvesting, like you mentioned, you know, you can hold things in the cooler. In fact, tulips can hold in the cooler for quite a long time, right? So if they come on too early, growers can harvest them early and hold them. Is that good advice for growers to know that they can hold tulips if they end up being too early? Yeah. Tulips can be held in the cooler. I like to say about a week to 10 days in water. 
And then if you need to hold them longer than that, you would store them dry, wrapped in paper and just laying in the cooler and usually in a, like in a cardboard box or Tupperware container so they don't dehydrate. But then you want to take them out and keep them wrapped up when you do recut the stems or rehydrate them where they're going to flop over and stay flopped over. So you want to support them while they're rehydrating. Another thing to think about is some other flowers like the snapdragons and stock. Those you don't have to pick the day they're ready. A tulip, you have to pick the, the day it's ready or it's going to bloom out and be old in the, on the plant, so to speak. A snapdragon or a stock, you can leave that on the plant for two or three more days. And it just gets bigger and better until it gets to the point where it's bloomed too far. But, you know, you can pick a snapdragon where it's a quarter open or half open or even two-thirds open. And it's still okay. Whereas this tulip, you have to pick the day it's ready. Or a lily, you have to pick the day it needs to be picked. You can't leave it on the plant for an extended period of time because it then blooms open and, and just doesn't do as well. Okay. So yeah, people just have to know their crop and how much, how much they can uh, win a harvest. And yeah. And if you are growing a greenhouse, like you had mentioned, you can either warm it up. If you're looking at your things, ah, they're not quite going to be ready for Valentine's day. Well, crank the heat up at night a little bit. Let the, the daytime vent be a little bit warmer instead of 70, make it 75 during the day to speed them up. Or if they look like they're going to be ready too soon, just back off in the heat, vent a little cooler during the day to slow them down. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So one of the tricky things about growing for Easter, of course, is that the date varies, can vary quite a bit. Yeah, I think it's from March 22nd to April 25th. So there's a whole four-week span that the Easter could be in, depending on the year. You always got to check you know, a year in advance to say, when's Easter next year? And then every once in a while, Easter's really late and Mother's Day is really early and only like a week, two weeks between them, which that really screws things up or makes it different because you can always have the same crop for both Easter and Mother's Day those years because they're only two weeks apart and you've if you have a bed of snapdragons or stock, they're going to be blooming over that two-week period. So you can almost hit two holidays with the same planting when Easter's late and Mother's Day is early. Yeah, that's convenient, but it also makes it so tricky on the grower side of things. because You can't just have that posted on your calendar, order the lilies or whatever for the on the same date every year. So oh, it changes. I would think that the first thing about hitting Easter is to make sure you know when it is and plan backwards. I mean, you know, I know Easter is a big flower holiday. What are the crops that people are going to do well with and that people want to buy around Easter? Well, as long as you have an early Easter, you're not way south. Tulips always work great. Sometimes in the northern parts of the country, tulips might be blooming in the middle of April in the fields. So you don't have to worry about a heated greenhouse or tunnel. You can just plant them and they're going to bloom at the right time for Easter. So anybody who's grown tulips in the past in the field should know that my tulips usually bloom from this date to this date, whether it's April 1st to the 15th or the 15th to the 30th. So they know when Easter falls in that time frame, you can plant extra tulips in the field and have more tulips for Easter if that Easter falls within when your tulips are normally blooming in the field. You can also speed tulips up a little bit by having them in a tunnel and that'll get them ready through two or three weeks earlier. So if you know your tulips in the field are ready April 1st, but you can get March 15th doing a tunnel, that means you can make Easter by putting tulips in a tunnel. So tulips are always an easy one to do for Easter, unless you're far south and tulip season's way over, you know, a late April 25th Easter is too late for tulips in South Carolina. It's just not going to work. They're finished no matter where you're growing them. Then you've got still the snaps and stock. You can do both of those for Easter. Both of those are fairly easy to time. You plant them the right date, grow at the right temperature, they'll be ready on time. Something else we didn't talk about before was callas. Callas take about eight to nine weeks to bloom. So if you're growing callas, you can have them to, uh, schedule them pretty easy for Easter. The only thing is callas don't like that 40 degree night. They want to be 55 or so. So doing them for Valentine's Day, you're going to have to crank your heat up a little bit higher. But for Easter, it's not so bad because by then, you know, you're talking in March and early April, you're not, it's not as cold outside. So you don't have to heat the greenhouse as much at night. Lilies can be done for any of the holidays. The only thing is you need to have lights on them if you're growing them in the wintertime 
like from mid-October to mid-March. If you don't have lights on, they're going to drop buds and abort buds, and you'll have a, a lily stem with no flowers, and that's not going to make a very good sale. You don't want that. So if you're growing lilies in the wintertime, you need lighting. That's the only crop that I know of in my list here that you would need have to have lighting on or you're going to have a failure is growing lilies. Everything else can take the lower light. As far as lighting for those lilies, you mean full grow lights, right? Not like full nighttime. Lights, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, not nighttime interruptions. It's day length extension. So you normally like have them come on at 3.30 or 4 in the morning and stay on until sunrise, which is like 7 o'clock in the winter. And it would be the full on bright. It used to be the high pressure sodium. Now it's LED lights. So you want real grow lights to extend the day length. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know those are pretty expensive to invest in, but I'm thinking if growers have, even if they don't have the whole greenhouse with grow lights, they could potentially use a, a propagation area or something like that to get those lilies under lights without doing the whole whole greenhouse. But that is very important to know. Yeah. One other thing for Easter flowers, a lot of times you think of Easter as the spring bulbs, daffodils and tulips and hyacinths. So it's great to include those when you cut flowers for Easter time. And one really easy one to grow is hyacinths, growing them in a crate. She talked about that in her article. Very easy to grow. You can plant 40 or 50 in a crate. They only take about two weeks to get ready after you start to grow them. And an easy crop to do in crates, even if you want to just plant them in crates, chill them somewhere, and then grow them in your basement under lights. Yeah. And the nice thing about the hyacinths, you can then put that whole crate in the cooler when it's ready and it can sit there for a month and it doesn't hurt them. So you can hold the hyacinths when they're ready in the cooler, in the crate, just put it in the cooler and it sits there. Oh. Oh, so they just they just hold hold on the plant. They just hold on the plant. No different than if they're out in the garden and you had a cold weather for two weeks. They just sit there. They don't grow. They don't do anything. They just sit there. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great one of the that. great things about these cool weather plants. So yeah. They'll deal with that. And I also want to talk a little bit about color palette because I know that that's one of the, the big things with flowers is that particularly I'm thinking weddings and, you know, there's different trends, different years. But, you know, I'm thinking Valentine's Day, Easter, I'm thinking pinks, purples, pastels and things like that. Would I be wrong to think that Valentine's Day and Easter, I'm sure the varieties change, you know, year to year as better varieties are developed. But am, am I right? It's a fairly stable color palette or, or is it a, you know, subject to trends like, say, weddings are? Yeah, Valentine's Day is red, pink and white. You know, 90 percent of what you sell is going to be red, pink and white. Don't grow a bunch of orange and yellow or purple. Definitely no orange in the spring. Once you get to Easter, yellow comes in because you think of yellow for Scythia. That's a, a color that works. Still right. no orange for Easter. Easter is still the purple, lavender, pink, red, white, and yellow. Uh, still no orange. Orange doesn't kick in until late August, September. It just there's it's it's a tough sell for the holidays otherwise. But if you have orange for Thanksgiving, you can sell every one of them. But the day after Thanksgiving, nobody wants orange anymore. So make sure you time your crops right. Nothing's worse than having a bunch of lilies time for, for Valentine's to have them bloom a week late and they're orange lilies for December. And it's going to be a really hard sell because nobody wants them. They want the red and white then because it's Christmas. Right. Another, another good reason to have your crop progressing a little bit ahead of time so you can slow it down rather than be too late and, and then have orange flowers yes. in December. When you're going for the holidays, it's always better to be ready a week early than one day late because one day late, you miss the holiday and you know, no matter how many red tulips you have, if they bloom the day after Valentine's Day or the day after you're selling for Valentine's Day, they're no good to you. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's one of the points she makes in the article is that after Thanksgiving, the color palette changes from orange over to more like reds and whites and greens, red, white, maybe red, white, and cream. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. So another, I'm trying to go chronologically here. The, the next big floral holiday that people like to give flowers for would, would be Mother's Day, which is pretty consistent there in, in the middle of May, right? Right. It's the middle of May. It's, it's the second Sunday of May, which can be anywhere from, I think, May 8th to May 14th. So it's the second Sunday of May. You can always count on that. But Mother's Day, one of the biggest flowers you can do is peonies, you know, the perennial peonies. If you're farther north, they're not going to bloom by Mother's Day unless you put a tunnel over them. And that's where a tunnel can come in really handy. You Even just one row on your peony field, put a low tunnel over, and the ones that are made out of electrical EMT, the metal tubing, just tall enough to cover them. cover those with plastic three or four weeks before they would normally break the surface in your area, which if you're a farmer, you should keep track of them when you, okay, the peonies broke the surface March 1st is when they do it in my area, or you know when the daffodils break the surface. So you know that's when you want to cover them three or four weeks before that to speed that bed up to get them ready for Mother's Day. Farther south in the Carolinas, they hit Mother's Day without any problem. Mid-Atlantic, Zone 7, you normally would need to speed them up a little bit because it always seemed to me to bloom the week after Mother's Day. So putting that tunnel over them, get them ready for Mother's Day, and you can really increase your peony sales. Because Mother's Day sales, I think in the article she mentioned, she can sell as much in one day as you would normally sell in the entire month. Sometimes you can do even more than that for Mother's Day because Mother's Day is the holiday when every mother gets flowers, you give them to your wife, you give them to your kids that are mothers, you just flowers, whether it's a cut flower or a plant, it's the biggest flower holiday that's when a grower could have stuff easily. Because you can have stuff from Mother's Day and have nothing but a high tunnel, or even just growing in the field, you can have stuff from Mother's Day. Maybe not in the farther northern, like zone six and five, you might need a tunnel. But there's a lot of stuff that's out in the field for Mother's Day. If you're up north, your tulips are blooming at Mother's Day. Your daffodils might be finished, but you could hold them in the tooler, in the cooler. You can always do callas. Another thing you can do for Mother's Day, if you're usually zone 6B or a little bit warmer, is sunflowers for Mother's Day. There's sunflowers that take 60 days or 55 days. Just count back. Give yourself an extra week time. Get them planted. Even if it seems too cold where you're at, put them in a tunnel, even out in the field. You can risk them growing and sprouting and getting a frost. But if you don't have that late frost, you have a, a batch of sunflowers for Mother's Day. Yeah, that's a good tip. And the other thing I used to like to do is that the farmer's market, make sure you have things to remind people that you're going to have flowers for Mother's Day. So a week or two before, start putting up signs that say, you know, Mother's Day flowers will be here. You know, don't forget your mom and all the other moms in your life. Whatever you want to make cute little signs to remind people that you're going to have flowers for Mother's Day. And then you'll be surprised at how long the lines will be on your stand at that farmer's market on Mother's Day because they remember to come and get flowers from you because every regular customer is going to buy flowers plus half the other people in the market are going to buy flowers from you. So your customer count is going to go from maybe 100 to 200. It's going to double the day of Mother's Day. Twice as many people buy flowers from you, and they're all going to buy more flowers than normal. So to me, Mother's Day was always the biggest flower holiday. You know, it has the most potential to sell flowers. Because you're usually at a market, if you're doing farmer's market, Saturday or Sunday, and Mother's Day is on Sunday. So the timing is always right. Yeah. I mean, that shows why people need to plan this so much because it can be so lucrative to do. Uh, yeah. Like, like Rebecca said, you know, you can potentially do a whole month's worth of business in a day if you've got your planning right. And of course you have, have to have the labor and, you know, maybe you can have some people you can call on since you're going to be, yeah, potentially doing your, you know, whole month's worth of business and you get all ready for that in, in a week. Right. If you're going to a farmer's market and Mother's Day weekend, you need to have extra help. Don't go with a normal two or three people you normally have. Send an extra one or two people to the market or people won't stand in line that long. You know, they'll wait for 10 or 20 minutes. They're not going to wait for an hour. This isn't Starbucks. <laughs> you know, they're not going to wait forever. Right, right. A, a little line is good to show people show people you're busy, but a big line is it can be too long. What about pe- color palette for Mother's Day? Is there anything that's reliable or is it subject to trends? 
subject to trends, I still think pretty much anything but orange, you know, true popsicle orange color just still doesn't quite cut it from Mother's Day, but anything else will, but stick them more with the lavenders, pinks, and soft colors, but any color will work for Mother's Day. Okay. So this is where we we go through, you know, Mother's Day is the last of the sort of spring holidays. And so there's American Flowers Week, which I'm thinking red, white, and blue, right? I think that's that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I realize American Flowers Week wasn't in the article, but I, I do think that's a great idea to try to just like get a warm weather flower holiday. And it seems like they're making that the Slow Flowers is making some inroads as far as getting people get that flower, that holiday on people's calendar. I've seen them do a lot with red, white and blue just because it coincides with the, the 4th of July. But I've also seen a lot of just really creative arrangements that I guess you can, uh, you know, people have a lot of material usually at that, that time of the year and so can do do all kinds of things do you think that people plan for american flowers week or is it just like they already have so much stuff that time of year it can be a, a help uh you know like a marketing help to be like buy some american flowers this week basically right i think if they just try and make sure they have some red white and blue flowers it's all they really need to worry about you know there's some great red flowers that always bloom at fourth of july crocosmia lucifer monarda jacob klein they're both a bright red flower and they bloom first week of july so you can't go wrong with those blue Blue Horizon Adjuratum is a good blue. You can do Delphinium for blue. Just make sure you have the right colors. But even though it's American Flowers Week, everyone's not buying a red, white, and blue bouquet. You'll still sell lots of other colors. It's not like Valentine's Day where it's going to be hard sell to, to sell an orange flower. For 4th of July timeframe, you can sell all different colors. But you should have some red, white, and blue because there are people who will look for that and it might get somebody to buy flowers who wasn't planning to buy flowers if they had that red, white, and blue out in the front you know, right in their face with, oh, look, it's red, white, and blue. Let me buy that for 4th of July. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like you mentioned, with the timing of these holidays, it can affect people's farmer's market sales a lot. Well, one trend that I saw, I think really happened a lot during the pandemic, was people going to online ordering. Or, you know, if they if they didn't already have it, setting up uh, online sales. And so, you know, one thing that occurs to me, just you talking about the variability as far as when some of these, the day of the week that some of these holidays fall on, is that people, if they do have online ordering, whether it's pickup or delivery or anything, it's as these holidays approach, it would be a great time for people to remind their customers that like, hey, maybe the holidays not convenient to our farmer's market, but if you want to get our flowers anyway, you know, go order online. And then at least, you know, I think that's a huge, going to be a huge boon to the industry that you know, maybe one good thing that came out of the pandemic is that people who didn't have online ordering, you know, went to the trouble to set it up then. And I, they're not going back. You know, I don't think people turned their online ordering off because we're not, you know, the pandemic is we're not in the pandemic anymore. And so I feel like that it could have actually been a really good thing for a lot of local growers to, you know, plug them into that electronic ordering and sales platform like that. I know some growers who started it during the pandemic and they continue to do it. And I know one in particular had several hundred orders just for Mother's Day of shipped flowers, in addition to all the stuff he had local and gets dozens of orders every week that he ships. So it, there is a market there for it. Again, though, you have to get your name out there so that people know that you have the flowers. So that's where the big social media presence comes in. So you um, used to be that you used to have an email list, but nobody has an email or years ago, a mailing list, but nobody does mailing list. Now it's an email list, but even beyond the email list, it's having social media presence and followers. So when you say, hey, we ship for whatever the holiday is, you know, we ship for Mother's Day, we ship for Easter, place your order now, you're going to get orders. It's no good to have an online ordering if nobody knows that you're there. So this constant promotion of yourself. 
That's a good point. Not just at the farmer's market, but also, I know Instagram seems really big for flower growers and, and whatever your social media channels are just to remind people, you know, if you've gone to all that trouble, all the trouble and planning of having flowers for these holidays, make sure they're sold. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about was shipping, of course, because that does open open up a lot more people as customers. But also, it's I, I know it's a whole other hassle and a whole other expense as far as packing flowers up and, and shipping them. But also, I feel like I've seen sort of, you know, some of the flower growers that we follow here at the magazine I feel like more people seem to be wading into shipping. Do you have any opinion on whether that's a good idea? Because I'm sure it's a big hassle, but of course it's going to open up a lot of customers, especially when there isn't a farmer's market right next to a holiday. You know, people might order the flowers when it's not convenient to get them from the farmer's market. Do you think that's worth smaller farms trying to start shipping? Well, if you're going to ship flowers, you have to know what flowers ship well. Like Uh you wouldn't ship a Cosmos, it's just not going to work. Dahlias don't usually ship well, but things like peonies, lilies, tulips, they ship great. You know, they, you can almost like turn the box up and down, upside down, it doesn't hurt them. So you need to know what crops you're growing that are shippable. You don't want to grow something that's going to always show up damaged. You need to have the right kind of box, where that means you find some box company that has the standard box you can use, or I know people that have designed their own boxes because they to match the length of the flowers they grow and the size of the bouquets they normally send. Something else that's really good for, as far as shipping flowers, is there's, you know, there's wholesalers that the normal retail florist goes to a wholesaler, has it delivered from them to the retail shop. But some retail shops in the middle of nowhere don't have a wholesale florist that they can easily go to. And it might only deliver to them once or twice a week if they even can get delivery. You know, I'm thinking of some little town out in the middle of nowhere, Kansas or West Virginia. And for them, the shipping option can work because they can go to this grower's website today, pick up what they need to have in the shop tomorrow, and it's going to be there tomorrow by noon. Whereas they don't have the option of going to wholesale that's 10 or 20 or even 30 miles away because the wholesaler is 120 miles away. And the wholesaler delivers them once a week on, you know, they make the Wednesday loop through that part of the state. So I think the shipping from the, the local farm to the more remote retail florist, I think has been really good. Um, I know a florist, a grower in Virginia that ships to quite a few florists. And that's what they're doing. They're shipping to florists who don't have easy access to a wholesaler for the normal wholesale flower chain. So they have an option of buying online from this grower in Virginia. And it's also because they might not have any local growers in their area. You know, there might not be another local grower for another 50 or 100 miles. It's like the ASCFG has their website called localflowers.org. And it has a map showing where all the growers are. And if you go out to some of the Midwest states, you know, out in New Mexico and Colorado, there's spots where there's no growers, at least ASCFG growers for hundreds of miles. So if you're a retail florist out there, you don't really have much option other than getting your flowers shipped in. So if you're going to get them shipped in anyway, you might as well get them from a, a grower in the U.S., a local grower, a small farm, rather than shipping them in Holland or South America or somewhere else. So that's where I think of the local grower shipping can sort of fill that need that a lot of retail florists have a need for those flowers. But again, the trick is getting those florists out in the middle of nowhere to know that you can ship flowers to them that'll be there tomorrow and be in great condition. Well, good. I'm glad you mentioned that because I do tend to think of shipping flowers, you know, other than, you know, plain loads of flowers. I do tend to think of shipping flowers for smaller growers as more like bouquets. But that's a really good point that they can maybe take advantage of the mail to do some wholesaling that they they might otherwise not be able to do. It's a really good point. All right. So we kind of skip through the summer other than in uh, American Flowers Week, right up to Thanksgiving, which I don't 
really think of a big as a big flower holiday, but I might be wrong about that because just with all the centerpieces and Thanksgiving is a de- definite holiday that people do a lot of decorations and things for. What could what should people be thinking about growing for that Thanksgiving? Well, one crop that's easy to time for Thanksgiving is lilies. And there's a variety of LA lily called Royal Sunset that is perfect for fall colors, whether you're selling it in September, October, up until Thanksgiving, it's just a great flower to have. Back when I was growing, I used to grow several hundred of them for the Whole Foods stores because they it was the perfect to you know, deliver to Whole Foods on Monday and they'd sell it out by Friday or Thursday and be done with them, you know, just for the Thanksgiving week. It's just a great flower. You plant them the last week of August and they usually written it should be timed right for Thanksgiving. Another thing is to think about other things that work really easy is the ornamental kale, which it's right now, actually, we're here at the mid-June. Now is the time to be starting the seed. You don't want to start your ornamental kale back in April or May because the plants just get too tall and too big. You start them in mid-June, plant them kind of close, and they're ready in mid-September. But the great thing about ornamental kale, it's ready in mid-September, and then it just sits there and sits there and sits there and sits there, and it never goes bad on the planet. Like stops growing in mid-September, gets a nice color, and just sits there until you pick it. So you don't want to plant just 100 plants. You want to plant 1,000, and then you can sell it from mid-September till Thanksgiving. And I've even seen it at Christmas time. still looks okay. In an unheated tunnel, in zone 5 or 6, it'll be fine. And outdoors, zone 7 or 6B, it still looks good at Thanksgiving. It can take a light frost. It doesn't hurt it. So it's a great one. And, and it's got that easy, really big flower. So just because it's not really a flower, it's just the leaves of the kale that looks like a some people call them cabbage roses. But it's really easy. It's an easy sell for that time of the year. It's kind of got that food element that works well in flower arrangements for Thanksgiving. So that's something that does. And the other thing that's great is mums, whether it's the heirloom mums or uh, at Ball, we saw ones that are the, we call the hybrid mums or the patented mums. You plant those now in mid-June, pinch from the first week of July, and they're great for Thanksgiving, start blooming in usually late September, early October. In a tunnel, mums or something has a very long harvest window. You know, you could pick it October 30th and it still looks good on the plant November 15th or 20th. You don't have to pick it the day it's ready, like a tulip or a lily. It has a long harvest window and then even a longer storage time in a cooler. And then once it gets to the person's house in a vase, it can last two or three weeks. So the mums are a great plant to have. If you are farther north than zone seven, we recommend growing them in a high tunnel because they can't take a frost. Unlike a garden mum that can get a frost and still looks good when you drive down the road at 30 miles an hour and it looks good in front of the house, a cut mum will look bad if it gets frosted. So you got to it's a little bit different than the garden mum, so they should be grown in a tunnel. But it's a great plant to have to for sales in October and November up to Thanksgiving. And there's even some colors you can do a, a white and a red for Christmas and even have them beyond that. But that's a great one to grow for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a really important point that they can't take the frost, that they'll, they'll need a little protection. They need a protection, yes. And even if you're farther north, like zone four and five, you know, you're going to grow them in a high tunnel, but I would like still like to have a, an emergency backup heat just in case you get a night that's down in the low 20s, which can happen up in you know Vermont and Maine in late October. It can get really cold. You, know, you don't just have a frost, you have a hard freeze. And you don't want to grow those all summer and have them go bad. Another great one for Thanksgiving is celosia, especially the coxcomb, because it gets those bright yellows and oranges and reds that are those intense colors for Thanksgiving. But again, they can't take a frost, so you might put some in a tunnel for later in the season. But those are the great colors for Thanksgiving. And fairly easy to grow. Yeah. Well, and I know, you know, I'm up here in Maine now, and I know that so many growers up here have some, at least some heated space just because our our season is so short. If you really want to push the season at all, you do kind of need some heat. So to my mind, trying to grow for some of these later holidays in the year, like 
Thanksgiving or Christmas could be a great way for growers if they're not already using that heated space, but they have capacity to just push the season if they aren't already into those late in the year holidays. And they shouldn't even need to heat it that much, right? Because through the November, I mean, especially Thanksgiving, but even December, I know our coldest weather and most people's, I think, is really after the end of the year. Yeah. So it might be a way to actually get some more out of those, that precious real estate of those greenhouses without paying the, the highest fuel bills that you're going to see. Right. Plus, as you all, everyone knows or should know, if you have a heated space, you want that space filled. You don't want to have a you know 30 by 100 foot greenhouse with only one bed full. You want it totally full because the more stems you have in there or the more plants you have in there, the lower the price per stem your heating is going to be. So you want to have a thousand mums in there, not just 50 mums. You want to fill that greenhouse at all times when it's heated, when you're running the heat. Yeah, absolutely. And pack them in as, as much as possible. I mean, I think that's one you know, when I got really into greenhouses, more on the vegetable side, but the one observation that I would make is that when I made the transition from thinking more like a field grower to a greenhouse grower, my mentality became like, how much can you possibly cram plants into a space? Like really limited by them getting disease, right? You know, they're packed in too tightly when they start getting disease. And of of course there are, you know, there's a certain amount of sunlight that, that each plant needs which I think can sometimes be helpful in flowers. I think sometimes people can crowd flowers to maybe get a little bit more stem length, but stretch. I think that's a pretty good idea to how to think about greenhouses. It's like, how many plants can I possibly cram into this place given my airflow and, you know, disease pressure and those kinds of things. I always like to say, don't make any money off the walkways, so make those as skinny as you can. You know, (laughs) fill that greenhouse full of plants. If you have to turn sideways to walk down the aisle, that's okay. Yeah, you know you're making more money if you are. That's a great tip. Thanks, Dave. I realized I did I had one more question for you about Thanksgiving. Okay. So obviously orange is a big thing for Thanksgiving, but you need some other colors. And I'm th- you know, there's not a whole lot of black in the in the flower world because that would make probably orange and black would make it look like Halloween. What other colors can you use to m- make it look like Thanksgiving but without having, you know, solid orange and browns and stuff like that? Oranges, obviously peach, coral, salmon, Yellows, not necessarily the bright, bright yellow, but more muted yellow. Reds can work. And uh, you can also always use green. Green works for any holiday. And that's the other thing I throw out there is that a retail florist, if you're selling to them, you don't want to just sell them flowers. You want to sell them greens also as in foliage. Because the first thing a florist does is they fill that vase with about a third of what they're going to use is going to be not flowers. It's a typical florist's ferns and things like that. But you can sell them eucalyptus and other greens, you know, basils, things like that, that they can use. So that's the other thing you'll grow for Thanksgiving. There's some of the nine bark, and there's that copper color, nine bark, and some burgundy color that works for Thanksgiving. So all those colors are fine. But any of those earthy fall colors, you know, there's a lysianthus that's called the Roseanne Brown. That's kind of that muddy color, but it's perfect for Thanksgiving. Yeah, those are good suggestions. I like brown a lot. I know brown is not like a hot, usually a, a hot, hot flower color, color. color, but I think it goes well with the orange. So yeah, uh, it does. All right. So for Christmas, I'm thinking it's changing over to more of a red, white, and green kind of color red, palette. Red, white, and green. Basically what you want. Yeah. So you're talking um, red lilies. You can do amaryllis. A lot of people don't think of amaryllis as a cut flower, but there is, you can grow amaryllis as a cut flower. So you do a red amaryllis. Paper whites. People think of those as a little bulb you force in a pot, but it also works great as a cut flower. You buy the bigger bulb and it puts out two or three stems per bulb. The bulb might cost you 60 cents, but you're getting three stems. You know, each stem basically costs you 20 cents. So that's a really good one to grow. Very fast to grow. 
and can also be held in the cooler. So in other words, when you got a crate full of paper whites and they're just ready to pop open, put water it really well, then put the whole thing in the cooler and just hold it there till you need it. So if you don't need them, if your market is not till next Sunday or, or your event is not till next Sunday, just put it in the cooler for four or five days to stop them in their tracks. So when you take them out there, that perfect just starting to open stage when you do use them. You can also, you can get anemones and ranunculus for Christmas if you grow in a heated greenhouse and start them in mid-September. You're just barely making uh, ready for Christmas. The trick is if you're in a, in a hot area down south, it's hard to get them started that early because it's too hot. But farther north, you know, like you know, Connecticut, Rhode Island, it's cool enough at night in late September that you can go ahead and get them started at that time. And the other thing to think about for almost any of the holidays is things like sticks, you know, curly willow, pussy willow, things like that. You can always use pretty much any time of the year. A lot of people don't think about curly uh, pussy willow to use it before the little catkins open. And some of them have really neat looking buds, a really bright kind of a, a maroon or burgundy color cover on the pussy willow before it opens. And that looks perfect for, for Thanksgiving and also for Christmas. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned the amaryllis because I, I didn't usually think of that as a cut flower. And I think a lot of people are familiar with getting it in the pots. And it's kind of more expensive. It's a more expensive flower to grow. Correct me if I'm wrong about that. But you and I think Rebecca also were talking about using more like one big stem of amaryllis as you know, like a, a focal flower. And so it's maybe like one flower that's a little bit more expensive to grow and then you can surround it with some some of the other flowers that are cheaper to grow and it makes a really big you know statement kind of bouquet right to me nothing looked a great looking bouquet at christmas time is the red amaryllis and white stock you got that really crisp red amaryllis and the pure white stock looks great together talking about amaryllis it's a big flower in europe as a cut flower and i know as in new york city at christmas time a couple years ago i would say probably Half of the places had flowers, whether it was a restaurant or a store, it had amaryllis in their arrangements. Sometimes just one big arrangement of just amaryllis flowers. But they used a lot of cut amaryllis in the floral industry in New York City. And, you know, there's no reason they can't do it in the rest of the world. And the thing about growing amaryllis is it's not like you buy the bulb in the fall, grow it, and you're done. Plant 12 of those in a crate and grow them year after year. You know, so you can have the same investment of buying those bulbs this year and still be making money off them three or four years from now. You just grow them all summer, let them go dormant, put them in storage for a couple of months, start growing them again in October, and they're ready for Christmas. So it's no different than a potted amaryllis. You can get them to bloom again and be great. You just have to do the right thing as far as growing it all summer with fertilizer and water, let it rest, and then grow it again in the fall. Oh, that's cool. I didn't I didn't realize you could get – that's a great tip that you could get multiple years out of it. I have an amaryllis on my patio right now. It's got the third stalk this spring. From where I've just every year I've saved it. And this year, one bulb, three fl- three stalks of flowers. Well, that's cool. So it's truly dormant through the the summertime. So is it the kind of thing where people no, could no. really even? Oh, it's not. It's not completely. It's dormant? not dormant. No. Others, if you're going to grow it in a crate as a cut flower, you're going to go and cut the flowers in the bloom. We then grow those green leaves up until mid-August. Then make sure it's dry. Then you put it someplace cool for two months maybe two and a half months, and then start growing in late October, early November to have them again for Christmas. We can also have them for New Year's, Valentine's Day, or any time over the winter. Oh, okay. Yeah, but you, the trick is to grow them for a good four or five or six months to regenerate the bulb for the next crop the following year. And so just keep them in the crates, you know, like imagine give them some fertilizer, fertilize right. as you just would. Just grow them like other... a plant. Uh-huh. Okay. Just grow them like any other plant, like a potted plant. Well, cool. That's a great tip to get a little bit more since I think amaryllis are a more expensive bulb. But Great um, flower. That's a yeah, gr- it's more expensive, but it makes a really interesting flower. And there's, I've seen before the double white in a bridal bouquet. It's amazing. Yeah. It works great for that. 
So a retail florist will buy them if you have the right colors for them. And the double white, the double light pink work great for bridal bouquets. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, that's a great tip because I know my family likes to give those. I guess I, I think of them, my family likes to give them around that time of the year. So, and it is, it is, it is a, a striking flower too. All right. Well, I think that was a really good whirlwind tour through the floral holidays. Is there anything else you would like to say about hitting all those flower holidays or anything I should have asked you? Well, I think the biggest thing about growing flowers for a specific date, whether it's one of these holidays or some customer says, oh, I'm getting married and need wedding flowers for August 10th or whatever the date is, is counting backwards when you need to plant. And they usually have to plant extra. So now this year, aiming for a certain date, whether it's you know an August 10th wedding or Thanksgiving for November 28th, you can't plant just one planting for that date. You just have to plant a week earlier and even two weeks earlier. So you have a, a wider harvest window. So you're definitely going to hit that date. Because like I said before, you don't want to plant something for Valentine's Day and have it bloom February 16th. It's not good. So you're going to count back when you should plant it and go one more week earlier than that and plant it. So you've got a longer harvest window when they do get ready that you'll have. You definitely hit that date. Yeah. Okay. That's that's a really good point. I'm glad you mentioned that. All right. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. I know you've got so much experience, Dave. I like to think that you might come back and talk with us again some other time. I'm sure there's all kinds of stuff we could talk about, but I'd be happy to. Okay, that's great. We'll have you back again sometime. In the meantime, can you tell us where people can find you on social media or elsewhere and where they can find your your courses and classes? Yeah, on social media, I'm Dave M. Dowling, D-A-V-E-M-D-O-W-L-I-N-G on Instagram and on Facebook. You can find both of those there. My work email is ddowling at ballhort.com. If you've got work-related questions, you want to place an order, buy something, happy to sell it to you. That's part of my job. And then I do my online class with the Gardener's Workshop. My class is called Bulbs, Perennials, Woodies, and More. It's kind of like when you have a cut flower farm and you're ready to go that next step and start growing some woodies and perennials and add those to your crop list. It's a really helpful class. I cover, I think it's 80 different crops that you could add to your farm to increase your sales because the more varieties you have available, the more you're going to sell. You know, if all you're selling is sunflowers and zinnias, you're not going to have much of a business. As soon as you add in 20 or 30 other things, or I know growers that grow hundred different crops throughout the year, you'll just sell more. And information about the class can be found at thegardenersworkshop.com. And the other thing that we changed with the class is now it's on demand, which means if you buy the class today, you get it right away. It used to be where you had to register in June and the class was only for the first six weeks of July. But now if you buy it today, you get it immediately and then you can start binge watching right away if you want to. There's no more waiting for the yearly, you know, once a year annual class. So that's a big change you made this year. Yeah, well, that's great. And that I haven't taken your class. I have taken some of the other Gardener's Workshop classes and they were really great. So I can imagine yours would be too. And that's such a great subject about the, the bulbs and woodies and things like that, because I know it's so nice not to have to grow everything annually, you know, and here I'm thinking about the woodies. And also I, th- I think a lot of times the, the woodies and other, other things actually other than flowers that growers can put in a bouquet are one of the things that give a, a bouquet a lot of character. Cause you know, in any given region, a lot of people grow the same flowers in the same slots. And I feel like it's some of that other stuff, the, the fillers and the woodies that people may sometimes not think about, you know, people think about the flowers as the big deal, but it's those woodies and greens and things like that, that di- give different people's arrangements, a real texture and, and a different feel. So I'm sure that 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 would be a great class for uh, for people to check out. The woodies are a great thing because I know some growers that there's one in Canada that's all he does is grow woodies, but the acres and acres and acres of it. You know, it doesn't do an annuals, just nothing but woodies. 
And there's a grower in Maryland that does a lot of woodies and does really well with it. So as long as you got a sales outlet for it, you can grow a lot of, you know, things like lilac, viburnum, willows, things like that, and make a decent income on it. Then you don't have to plant it all every year. <laughs> right. You plant it once. Yep. Just maintain it for years. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate you sharing your your experience with us. And the next time we, we think of a subject that sounds like it might be up your alley, we'll give you a call. Sounds good. Happy to join you anytime. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Growing for Market podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider giving us a follow and a rating or review. It really helps others find the podcast. For more tips and tricks from farmer to farmer, check out our magazine at growingformarket.com. Whether you're a commercial grower or just want to grow like one, subscribe to Growing for Market magazine for the nitty gritty of growing, marketing, and the business of market farming. If you're not familiar with us, you can request a free print or digital sample from our website, growingformarket.com. And the next time you're in the market for farm tools, don't forget to visit our podcast collaborator, Neversink Farm, for the best in farm tools designed and made by farmers at neversinktools.com.